Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Good morning, everybody. Man, I love it that we can come together and celebrate babies. We can celebrate the grace of God. We can celebrate uh, shift changes. We can ce- this is, it's like a family get-together, right? These are the things that you celebrate when you get together as a family. And so I just, I love how we can just come together in the name of the Lord as one family and celebrate the things that God's doing in our midst, big and little. And so praise the Lord for that. If you want to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians, we're continuing in our series on 1 Corinthians, the week number two. I realize the kids are in the service. This won't be a long message. I don't want to... Uh, have the kids uh, rise in mutiny against us at any point. But um, that being said, if the kids are making noise, if they are getting jittery, that is okay. Because the family next to you, their kids are probably already jittery and making noise. And so please don't feel bad. If you need to get up and walk around in the back, that's completely fine. If you need to stand up where you're at, that's fine too. It's no problem whatsoever. So this morning, turn with me, 1 Corinthians Look at chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. A hundred years of Christian fellowship, spiritual love, godly unity, and community growth ended last Tuesday in a fit of congregational discord not to be rivaled in this century. Holy Creek Baptist Church was split down the middle like the tabernacle cloth that tore at the point of our Lord's crucifixion. It is said that one could hear that rip a hundred miles away. Holy Creek Baptist was severed from the once stalwart cord of unity that bound them together. The fist of discord has pounded an army of Christian soldiers into two disheveled, unorganized factions of estranged members. The source of this dissension in this holy house of God is a piano bench, which still sits behind the 1923 Steinberg to the left of the pulpit. Did that, did that piano move? Wasn't it over here last week? Anyways, Landover Baptist members who have friends or relatives at the Holy Creek Baptist say that the old bench was always a source of hostility. People should have seen this coming. That congregation was getting ready to break for the last 10 years, someone said. It's just a shame that it had to be over the piano bench. One outside pastor commented, However ridiculous it might sound, I'm sure the Lord is using this whole thing in some way that none of us can see or make any sense of at all or ever hope to comprehend. (laughs) At the present, Holy Creek Congregation will have two services a day. There has been an unspoken agreement mediated by Pastor Deacon Fred at the Landover Baptist Church. Each faction will have its own separate service with its own separate pastor. Since the head pastor is not speaking to the associate pastor, each will have their own service, which will be attended by faction members. We are told that the services are far enough apart that neither group will come into contact with the other. An outside party will be moving the piano bench to different locations and appropriate positions between services so as to please both sides and to avoid any further conflict that could result in violence. 
Church discord and division, it's terrible. And as funny as that is, that's not a real story. At least I hope it's not a real story. Probably is a real story, but it's plentiful. And many people sitting here this morning in this church have at some point or another in their lifetime have experienced the harsh realities of church division and discord. And if we were to take a show of hands, and we're not going to do that, but if we were to take a show of hands, I'm sure we would be shocked at the pain and the experience that we've seen around us. Let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-17. through 17. The Apostle Paul begins to speak to the church now. And he's confronting something going on in the church because there are some deep divisions happening. And so this is the Apostle Paul now speaking to the church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or are you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. God, we pray this morning as we open your word, Lord, that you would continue to speak to us. Lord, help us to fix our attention upon you. God, open our hearts Give us the gift of faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of the unity we have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Paul, as he continues on in the book of 1 Corinthians, he continues on and he starts this way because as he's speaking to the church, he's not speaking as a neutral party. There's been some things that have come to Paul's attention. He's gotten a report from somebody that there are some deep divisions in the church that he had started a number of years ago. So as he's addressing them, there's a sense of urgency in this message. There's been divisions. He's been hearing about this. He's not on the the scene, so he's got to write from a distance. So what he does is he starts off by calling them and addressing them as family. And you can almost sense the, the irony in this right? He says, look, I give thanks to you. I'm sorry, I appeal to you, appeal to you brothers. And then later in verse 11, he also refers to them as brothers. He, he's calling them, look, we're family together in the midst of this division. Let me remind you of what Jesus Christ has done. Because what he just said in verses 4 through 9 is he lays out the beauty of what we have in Jesus Christ. 
And he says this, he says, we're called into fellowship with Jesus Christ in, our, in God. He says we're given grace, that we've been given a testimony about Jesus, that we're kept, kept guiltless until his return, that we've been empowered by the Spirit to follow after Jesus, that by extension we're called into fellowship with one another. And in light of all that Jesus Christ has done for us, in light of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished for his people, brothers, see the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you and I is not that our relationship with God has been affected, it has been, but it's also that our relationship with one another has been transformed. The relationship that you and I have with one another as God's people has been completely and utterly transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And no longer are we just individuals in this life, but we've been knit together as family, as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ because of what he's done. And if this truth that we proclaim about Jesus Christ is the best news ever, that our sins have been forgiven, that we've been made as God's people, restored into fellowship with him and also with one another, then if that is the case and that is the reality, then there is no room for division. There is none whatsoever. And see, the appeal isn't just for the sake of unity. He's not making an appeal to the church just for the sake of unity, like, hey, look, we should just really get along because life is easier when everyone gets along. He's making an appeal on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of the nature of the gospel. And so what he says in verse 10 is important because this is really the thesis of the whole letter in verse 10. And he says this, that all of you agree. And so in the original language, what he says, what this correctly translated would say is that you would all have the same voice. You have the same voice, the same mind, the same judgment. And the unity that we experience together as God's people is an evidence that the gospel is true. How does the world know that our proclamation of Jesus Christ is real? How, do we, how does the world know that our proclamation of who God is and his reconciling work that he's done in us is true? It's because they see it in our lives and the way that we interact with one another. The, the community that we experience, the fellowship that we have with one another, is the evidence of something supernatural that has taken place because of Jesus Christ. It is the evidence that God is, is alive, that God is active in our midst. Because what Jesus Christ does is he unites people across ages, across economic barriers, across races, across nationalities. He brings everyone together in his body. And because of that, it's a clear declaration that the living God is in our midst. The world can look from the outside and say, look, there is something different happening in that church. There's something different happening in that body. Because clearly, the, West, the rest of the world, there's nothing else like it. It's absolutely amazing. In verse 10, he says this, and he calls to them that you be united. This word for united is... In this context, the word that he uses for united in the first century was a medical term. 
And it was a medical term describing of joining broken bones back together again, or joining tendons and ligaments that have been torn, fractured, dislocated. They bring those back together in unity. Now, back when I was, I think, 20 years old, I was playing basketball at the courts in Griffith, right? So if you're from around here and you play basketball, you know about the courts. It's where everyone would go to play. It's downtown Griffith, right by the YMCA. And those were the courts. That's where you went to play ball in the region. And one day, I was out there playing basketball, and you, you played rough. You, there's always a long line of people waiting to play. So if your team lost, man, you're sitting out, you might as well just go home because it's going to be hours before you get back on the court again. So people played hard when you played there at the courts. And one, one afternoon, I'm there playing, and I'm guarding a guy, and we're under the basket, and he, he's got the ball, and he, he does a pump fake, and I jump up to block him, and then he, he stays on the ground. And then he, thinking, I, 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 I believe he thought that there was pro scouts watching, right? There was some kind of, you know, NCAA coaches keep an eye on him or whatever to, to give him a scout. He, he undercuts my legs to draw the foul. So he jumps into me, undercuts my legs, you know, and I'm like feet above the rim, right, because that's how high I can jump. And... <laughs> And he takes my legs out from underneath me, and I fall, and I land right on my wrist on the cement. And I, I broke a bone right in the middle of my wrist. And unfortunately, it was, it was a bone that some kind of, this, like, bone that's, that no one ever breaks. And this is what the doctors told me, at least. And the blood that is pumped through that bone is actually the blood that's returning to the heart, Therefore, there's less oxygen in the blood, and so it takes even longer to heal. So I had this, so they had to put a cast on my hand from like the tips of my fingers all the way up to the top of my shoulder to make sure that I wouldn't move my wrist at all because they had to make sure this thing would, would, get, would, would heal properly. Well, how many of you have ever broken a bone before and had a cast on, right? Many people have. Now, when you've got that cast on your hand, is it just your arm that's affected? No, it's your whole body's affected, right? Everything you do is affected by the fact that you've got this, this huge cast on your arm. You can't shower, you can't read, and you can't write, you can't, you can't, I mean, this is, I, this happened to me at the beginning of the summer in May, right? So I'm going to have to have this cast on for months. I can't golf, I can't fish. This is before I had kids, so I actually did some of those things at one point. I still do sometimes, but, um, that's not the point. The point was, is that everything is affected. Everything you do is affected by this broken bone. And in the same way, in the same way, when there's division in the church, everything else is affected. Everything else that this church is doing, everything else that's going on in the midst of this congregation, it has, it has a ripple effect into everything. And you can imagine... As a, as a congregation, as a people of God, as a church of Corinth, here they are declaring this, this gospel that is, that is almost too good to be true, that Jesus Christ has united people across all ages and across races and Jew and Gentile and, and Greek and, and everything else. He's brought people together. And we celebrate this and we declare this and then we can't even get along with each other. It almost makes the gospel unbelievable. 
The bottom line is this. Division in the church is a much more serious matter than we realize. And going through when you're in the middle of division in your church is not the time to try to figure out how to get through it. It's before that ever gets to that place. And it's so important because of this. Because division undermines the reality of the gospel. Not because it just makes it uncomfortable for us to live with each other. That's, a, that's important, but that's not the most important thing. What division does is it undermines the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says in verse 13, he asks this question, is Christ divided? It's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting them to say maybe. The answer is no. Christ is not divided. So when we see in our own hearts, in our own lives, a proclivity towards unforgiveness, towards excluding other people, towards walling ourselves off from other people, we need to repent as fast as we possibly can. We need to find a place of of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for the grace to remove ourselves, to get get rid of that. All division, all all thoughts of, of me and my own. And ask God to forgive us because that does not honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing in verse 17 is this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This word he uses for eloquent wisdom is not philosophical understanding. It's an expression of skillful speech. It's an expression of someone who's able to eloquently describe and and orate whatever someone wants to know. And so for some of the younger people here, there was a time in history when there was not a Facebook or a Netflix, right? And so people didn't just have means of entertainment readily accessible at their fingertips 24-7. And so back in the first century, a lot of times the entertainment would come from somebody coming to town who is a skillful master speaker who'd be able to tell stories and describe things. And what he, people would hire these traveling um, speech givers. They'd, they'd hire them for political means or for an advertisement for uh, a public event or, or something like that. For these master speakers. But the reality of the gospel is such that it doesn't need a polished, polished presentation or a reliance on human ingenuity to provide salvation. My mom talked a little bit about the table conversations at Purdue Cal. It's a beautiful way. We may think, man, how would I ever go from really being afraid to share my faith to being able to sit down with someone from a different culture and, and, and describe and talk about Jesus Christ with someone who doesn't, doesn't, know about Jesus or have never even heard of him and how would I even do that and how would we even move forward in that kind of conversational relationship and I think it's not based upon how eloquent we're able to present the gospel it's never been that the the, the stripped down bare bones message of the gospel is enough 
It's enough for salvation. It's enough for life transformation. It's enough to completely radically save someone from the deepest depths of sin. See, the the simple message of a crucified Savior can be hard to accept at times, even for our own selves. Even for our own selves. There's something in us that wants to dress it up or add something to it, right? There's something that says, look, if you want to get right with God, you're going to need to... You need to go to church, you need to read your Bible, you need to quit swearing, you're going to need to, you know, start giving to the church, you're going to need to, you know, serve in children's ministry, and we need to, there's all these things that we want to just add on and, and pile on to the, the simple message of the gospel. But that's not what Paul does here. We can't dress it up. We can't contribute anything to it. Stands alone. Think of it like this: as a parent, when um, when you're there in the delivery room, I know it's a happy thought for some people. When you're there in the delivery room, uh, as 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 the as the the father watching your your wife go through this the most horrific, painful experience of her entire existence, right? And, and all the work that she does for this. Then at the very end, if the baby's born, the doctor hands you a pair of scissors to cut the umbilical cord. And it's like, like I've added something to this whole thing. Like now I've done, I've done my part. I've cut the umbilical cord. I've added something to this experience, right? You've done all this work, and at the end I just kind of clip, okay, we're done. Who's hungry? You know, it's like, I added nothing. I added nothing to this process. I, I brought nothing to the table here. You know, I just kind of this. But yet, it, they want the father to be involved and to feel like he's participated in some way and all that kind of stuff, right? It's the same thing with the gospel. We don't add anything to it. We don't take anything away from it. It, it stands on its own. It's going to produce... L- a transformation in people's hearts and lives, whether we, we try to dress it up and make it sophisticated and make it sound just so intriguing, apart from the simple truth. We don't add anything to the message. Stripped down in all its rugged glory is a crucified Savior who died in my place for my sins. That is the simple truth of the gospel. This is the message that had transformed the lives in the church in Corinth. This is the message that's transformed the lives of people here at Mercy Hill. This is the simple message that has transformed church and person for century after century. This is the simple message that does not go away, that is not diminished, that will not be silenced. This message crosses across all language barriers, across nations, across across centuries of, of people. It crosses in... It goes forth in its simple truth since this was first penned 2,000 years ago. And it's still the same message that we proclaim today. Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. That is our hope. That is the hope that we hold today.
I'm going to pray and close. The Brian's going to come up and lead us in communion. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the simple message of the gospel, of your life and death and resurrection, that as we place our faith in you, we are forgiven and restored and made whole. Lord, we pray this morning that we would trust you, that we would believe you, that we would feel no need to dress up this simple message, but wholly entrust ourselves to you. In your name we pray. Amen.